You're listening to Truth Hurts Podcast, presented by myself, Mark Shepard, and special guests. Hello and welcome to our very first Truth Hurts podcast. My name is Mark Shepard, your host, and this episode is going to be in two parts based on family law. Today we are joined by Steve, the author of blog, Dad Still Fighting for You, Emily, and the organizer of Ambling Against Alienation. We're also joined by Debbie, the emotional resilience coach, alienated parent and grandparent. Uh, We also have Matt, an ex-registered nurse of 40 years. And we also have Paul, the CEO of West Africa Energy, chair of the board of trustees for Families Need Fathers and Both Parents Matter. We'll be having an open discussion today with regards to family law and the court professionals. Um, We've got a few topics to cover today, which just give people a a bit of an enlightenment of what we're going to be talking about. And it's going to be family court and judges, CAFCAS, social services, children's uh, guardians and legal aid i'm going to kick this off because obviously these topics are close to my heart so i'm going to start off with the family court and judges so the most important thing is when people are in relationships or about to separate or whatever divorce whatever happens in that relationship sometimes you're going to get put into a situation where you may not gain access to your children. Now, we all know that as parental alienation, but when it comes to the courts, there's a process that you need to follow. Um, At the moment, it's compulsory for whatever parent it is that maybe doesn't have access to the children, has to go to mediation first before applying to the family court. Now, myself, when I started this journey 11, 12 years ago uh, for my, my, my eldest daughter. The process was very different then. I didn't actually have to go to uh, mediation. I could actually just apply directly to the courts. And that's what I did. It's only when we, <laughs> we started going through the court process, they said, why ha- have you tried mediation? Uh, so they said, before you come back, why don't you go away and try mediation? Now, the hardest thing with mediation is to get the other parent to cooperate, to actually engage with the mediation, um, which I struggled with, unfortunately. Even though I did it, the other party caused problems and wouldn't really cooperate when it came to the actual mediation session. So in the end, we had to go to court. So I filed my C-100 application and the whole process started. Now, this is something I had I'd never done before. I never felt very comfortable doing it because I didn't understand why I needed to do it. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are listening to this uh, podcast thinking I'm the same. You know, I was everything was perfectly fine when we were together and then we separated. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I have to go to court to see my children. You know, it's, it's rather ridiculous. So for me, when, when the whole process started, I felt that, you know, it's really unnecessary. So I tried to get it wrapped up as quick as possible. But I found that when I was in court that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quite blunt about this, that the judges I had 
Not saying everyone's going to have the same experience, but the judge that I had for my particular case seemed very biased. Um, they, they wasn't really engaging with me in the court. And I was very grieved about this because at the end of the day, one, I'm going to court in the first place, which I didn't really want to do in the first place, but I had to go to court to see my children. And I was in court and the judge, I felt was very biased. They, they wasn't engaging with me. They didn't want to view my evidence. They didn't want to support me in any way. Now, this is this is the issue that I have. When you when you have to be thrown into a situation where you have to go to court, it's it's distressing enough. It's it takes its toll on your mental health. It makes you anxious. Why is it that when you're in there, they make you feel like? And, I, and I'm going to be honest. It made me feel like a criminal. They made me feel like a criminal. They made me feel like I'd done something wrong as to why I ended up in court in the first place. Now, I don't know everyone's personal experiences here, but does anyone else have a view on that? How did you lot, if anyone here ended up in court, how did you feel when you entered that court or applied to court? Yeah, hi, Mark. So I, this is Paula Callahan. I, I, I felt exactly the same. You know, I, I've never had any experience whatsoever of the court process before family law. I'd never been in, in, into a court, never even had so much as a, a, a parking ticket or whatever. But the moment you start going into this process, walk, even walking into the building, you know, you get heart palpitations, you start wondering what's going on. And it's just the, it's the lack of certainty around the whole process, which, you know, gives you that anxiety. And I think, you know, the, the idea that you're, you go in there you see your ex-partner, ex-wife, ex-husband or boyfriend sat there in the same room. You're not talking to each other. You have your lawyer, they have their lawyer. And it's almost as if you're, you're two boxers giving up for a fight. And it's, 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 really, it's really a very, very unpleasant experience. And you do, you're made to feel like a criminal. You're, you are, I'm sure it's designed deliberately to make you feel unwanted in that court process. And it's, um, it's, a, very, it's a very difficult experience to, um, to explain to people who have no, no knowledge of the process. So I, I share your views completely with it. So the, the biggest problem that I felt is when you go to court, you don't actually get any support. So you're kind of on your own, whether or not you choose to self-represent or you choose to <clears throat> get a lawyer in to, to support you. Now, let's be honest. <laughs> if you get a solicitor or a barrister to support you when you're going through this process, you will find that the process will get dragged out. Now, I, I don't know um, anyone that hasn't got a, a solicitor or a barrister involved that hasn't had their case dragged out for quite a long time, actually. Um, whereas you can normally wrap this stuff up within three to six months. But I, like myself, I was in there a good solid three to four years for my children. And, and to me, that is too long. You shouldn't have to be in court that amount of time. And, and, and as you said, Paul, when you first go in, you're anxious, you're scared, you're worried about the future. And the last thing you need is to speak to a judge and plead your case to, to tell them why you want to be a parent. Yeah. It's absurd. And I, th I think it's also important to, don't forget, this, all, this often comes at the most unsettling time in your life. You're, you're going through a separation or someone that you've been married to for a number of years. You know, 
chances are during that separation you're you're gonna have to move house one of you will have to move house the children will have to move house and so on so you're, you're you know i think they say marriage you know moving house divorce are the most stressful things you can go through all of a sudden you're going through at least three or four of them all at the same time so your your emotional level is literally at capacity and you're then faced to face in front of a judge and you've got to say i am a good parent because of x y and z now, and many many people have been you know, let's say five years married they've had two children or whatever and all of a sudden contact is withdrawn and all of a sudden you're in front of somebody begging for begging to see your children it was actually two months ago it wasn't a problem and you were seeing your kids no problem and so it's the whole thing is that it's a very irrational and uh, an unsettling and un, un, unexpected process to be in at, a, at probably what is the worst time in your life as you're going through but there's no support whatsoever for anyone to go through it I was going to say, actually, what you're talking about there, Paul, is you're talking about mass layers of grief that you're actually experiencing. Because it's grief at the breakdown of the relationship, grief at the loss of your children, grief at the loss of your home, grief for so many different things. But we don't give it... And that's exactly how it feels. It. It, does, it does feel like grief. It really does. Well, that's exactly it does, I agree, 100%. That's exactly what it is. And if you're angry as well, that is also a form of grief. So yeah. all of those levels of grief that you're carrying around, it's incredibly painful baggage and it's just not acknowledged in the court system. You're seen if you're angry as being angry. You're not seen as grieving. But that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. And if you're and, seen and, as being angry, you're seen as being the bad parent as well. Yes. Exactly. If you show emotion... Yeah. Yeah. They seem to, to use that against you, like you're yeah. irrational, you know, yeah. you, wh why are you behaving like this? But then mm. you think to yourself, well, hold on, before I ended up in court, I was have I had a perfectly fine relationship with my children. Yeah. There was no issue there. But yet, as soon as I'm separated or, or divorced, now I'm, 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 in, I'm sitting in front of you, judge. You know, why am I here? Yeah, there I was think... no issues before, but all of a sudden now it's an issue and I have to come to you for you to tell me when I can see my children. I think, Mark, you've just hit the nail on the head with my overriding motion of it all. It was just total confusion. Why am I here? What's gone, what's gone wrong? How the hell did this happen? How am I going to go forward? Just total confusion and, and no support, as you said earlier. There's no even your own solicitor or my own solicitor. I didn't really get any support from them. And, and, and they're not don't... really interested in supporting you, though, are they? Let's be honest. No, no, no. They don't actually know how. Exactly. They don't exactly. know how. Many years ago, I did actually work in family law. I was the receptionist in the, the front of house and the, um, the litigation guy was always, always very abrupt, very curt. He didn't really know how. They're not taught how. They're not taught how to really relate to you. But that's our biggest problem as we sort of try and fight this parental alienation. We've probably been going five minutes and there's already so many emotions, that have, or so many different types of emotion that's, that's come up. It's, it's such a massive, massive subject. Various people have so many different views on it. It's, mm. yeah. I, I, think, I think the also underlying issue here is the power that's given to these circuit judges that don't really understand they, they don't understand one how each parents needs needs to be supported and they don't understand really 
what you're trying to achieve as a parent because as far as they're concerned everything's black and white they need to write a court order and they're going to say right you used to see your children 24 hours a day seven days a week but now i'm going to give you two hours yeah i think i think i, I completely agree with what you're saying but i think part of the challenge is also is that um and it's gonna i'm gonna say fathers because it's typically fathers who make the applications for contact um, a man i think i believe and i'm not a psychologist or anything like that but i believe a man typically wants to fix something and he before the process has gone through he already has an answer in his head okay this is what i want it's gonna be you know i want to see my kids i want to see the midweek i want to see them at the weekends and take them away on holiday and all that stuff and what we don't understand is actually there's a whole process that has to be got through whether you agree with the process or don't i don't agree with the process but they they are trained the lawyers the judges and all the all the ancillary services are trained to go through this process they're not trained to get to an answer they're trained okay you've got to do step one then you go to step two then you go to step three then you go to step four and you do all that way until these people come to some sort of agreement and it's just it's just unbearable it's absolutely unbearable and um you know when i was there when i first went into court and when i was in court two times one back in um one back in um 2000 um and six and sorry it's 2007 and again about 2017 and I saw a distinct change between the court in those 10 years in that they had got much, much worse. And I mean yes. much worse. 100%. And, um, and you just don't recognise what's you don't recognise what you're up against and so on. And the other challenge is as a, you make your application to court, you expect, you say, OK, now the court will decide. And you expect that to be the answer. And it's not the answer. They don't care about your case. They have thousands of cases. They're going to churn you through as quickly as they can. I've been in court at least 70 times seven zero times and probably seen i would i would guess about 40 different judges oh wow and uh, how how on earth can you look how on earth can anyone have any serious serious view on a case after all of that so it's consistency isn't it it's, it's there's no consistency now when both times i went to court and i went to court a lot of times <laughs> but the two judges the two separate cases that I went to court for, not one judge ever looked at my evidence, okay? And I questioned that, I actually challenged them and I said, why are you not looking? I said, the whole purpose of a court is, is, is the balance of probabilities to actually look at the evidence and make a judgment based on the evidence that's produced by either client, okay? But when, when I produce my evidence, now don't get me wrong, there was a lot of evidence, okay? But, but when you're a parent that is non-resident, all you want to do is see your children. That's all you want to do. You, you, if that means you have to pull up every bit of evidence since you, the day you was born, <laughs> you will do that. You will do that because at the end of the day, all you want to do is see your children. So I want to talk about the judges now, how the judges work in terms of coming to their, their decisions, okay? And, and especially for me, if you don't read the evidence or prepare to read the evidence, then how can you make a judgment that is in the best interest of those children? No, I completely agree. Yeah. They're, they're... Clearly can't. My case was, my case was, it went over quite a few years and um, I had five enforcement orders and I got to see the children again she let me see them uh, after that. But then she moved 100 miles away and didn't tell me. She met some guy and married him. 
and moved away. She told me she's moving locally. Then I managed to find out where she'd moved to. So then I took it back to court again. And then she started to, it was, it was a bit weird how this went. She would let me see the children sporadically. And so I was seeing them for a while, but it was on her terms. I had to go to her house and it was all on her terms. And um, it just got worse from there. And then she got involved with an alcoholic and she became an alcoholic. And then it just got really bad. And um, basically uh, the, the social services got involved because she went to the school. Because I couldn't go to the school. I couldn't report it to social services because I would, that would be seen as a malicious act. So I couldn't say, the guy she's with now is alcoholic, but she's got a big problem herself. I couldn't say that. So I had to wait for some other person's thought. Someone at the school actually reported it to social services. The children were put on a child in need plan and then it became a child protection plan. In the meantime, she'd made, I can't remember how many ridiculous amounts of false allegations against me, which got even worse uh, when I refused to pay her maintenance because she was drinking all the money away. And I said I'd get the children that food delivered. And she stopped me seeing them at that point. And then next thing I know, a month later, I'm getting accused of child sexual abuse. So I thought that was well. And, um, and I had to go to the child protection meetings. They they increased the threshold from solving the child protection at that point. And all these females in this room were looking at me like I was just the biggest piece of scum they have seen in life. Um, and they wouldn't engage with me. It was just horrible. But finally, um, when I went back to court again, they said I, I couldn't get the boyfriend they couldn't get rid of because she had to tell him to go. They had no powers for social services to ask him to leave. So in the meantime, I'd gone back to court and I'd had a recording of her. Uh, basically, I'd used the recording to the court and the parents principal where she was saying to my daughter, you hate women, so see you next Tuesday, and that's her name, to my daughter's crying. And then they, they agreed to do that, and then she started to shake, and she admitted to it there and then. And she said it's because she was my father. Anyway, that went on from there. But it kind of got different for me then, because um, they now saw her in a different light, and then they pulled in a children's solicitor, or solicitor for the children, my guardian, and then they wanted psychological um, uh, interviews and all of this. So they did me and her, and they did the children first, then me and her, and then they found out the children were unjustifiably rejecting me um, for, for the most sort of anemic of reasons you can imagine. That they really didn't stand up to anything. Like I nearly took them into a field full of balls once or something, and my son was upset because he had to wait his turn to wear 3D glasses to watch a movie, that kind of thing. And then they decided, then it all changed from that point and it became quite different. And your experiences, which the horrible, which I've just heard, mine kind of turned around then and they decided that um, they get an HHJ in, which is a senior judge. He also tries criminal trials and stuff like that. And she was great. And then the, the guardian was great. And she she suggested parental alienation is occurring. And she's the one that pushed for the psychological processes and everything else. And then she was asking me, how do you feel about having your children full time? And I was thinking, oh, my God, this is great, you know. And then um, that all fell apart when she suddenly went sick and disappeared. Then they got another one, another guardian in this this man. He was okay, but he wasn't asking from, you know, uh, talking about me having the children. They just wanted to keep the children with her, so they got somebody into her house to dry her out. 
she got rid of the boyfriend because he beat her up in front of my daughter's friends for another for a pet's name. In the meantime, I can't see the kids because of all this, these false allegations, which were since then they've played in the Middle East, but that damaged my relationship with the children. And I didn't see them for three years. By that time, she'd properly alienated them. And the last hearing in February was, they were saying one of it, one of it was my fault. Um, it's tragic that uh, the children are too old to come and move with me, to move in with me. Um, because of their ages and their existence. So they, they decided to leave them where they were. And the judge even said himself the children were going to suffer further emotional harm. Now this could have all been cleared up yeah. a lot sooner. That's, that's right what there, I was going to say, right actually. Right exactly right the same thing. That is exactly, um, the same thing. That, that is exactly what I was going to say. It's, it's, this, it's the dragging out process. I don't understand it. I don't get it because if you look yeah. at it realistically, if you any judge looked at everyone's case and just said right i'm gonna look at the evidence right there's no there's no official um reports from the police of abuse or anything like that or any harm to the children okay so what we can do is the other parent can start seeing a child or children while we're going through the court process okay yeah. but what they do they stop everything they stop all contact and yeah. But that's what I'm saying. You've well, they put, you put that silver bullet in the there, sexual allegation, they said. and that's it. You can stop your communication. Yeah. yeah. Do you not notice though that there's a there's a pattern yeah, that comes just, in these cases? Is that once once the um, the resident parent feels like the case is going against them, the level of allegations gets ratcheted up. Correct. Exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing happened in mine. Is that you know we all started and you know, things were moving my way. All of a sudden, an allegation of um, sexual. Um, uh, so I was I was inappropriately being sexual to my daughter and all this type of stuff. That and that all of a sudden panic measures struck. I mean, my ex-wife actually wrote on my daughter. My daughter was like nine months old, ten months old. She wrote on her nappy, "Don't hurt me." Actually, on her nappy. So when she when she came to me for contact, I was changing my daughter's nappy, and that was the first thing I saw. I caught. I had a door. I had a guardian. I called the guardian and said, "This my ex-wife is not mentally stable enough." To be looking after a child as a result of this, as oh no, it's okay that she feels you know she feels that's exasperated by the whole process and so on. So they're constantly making excuses for them, and then these allegations just get worse and worse and worse, and then status quo sets in, and all of a sudden it's all this, that, and the other. So it's 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 a real challenge. I just want to point out though that the guardians, the court, and Kafkas have a have a legal obligation in in public law cases to maintain the relationship between the child and the parent. So if a child is going up for adoption or anything like that, until the, the court orders the adoption, they have a legal obligation to maintain that relationship. Where they don't have they don't they don't understand they don't identify that legal obligation inside private law as well. So they just say, okay, the father or the mother is not seeing their child and therefore don't worry about it. In in two years, maybe three years time when it's all resolved, we might be able to get back to contact again. And then the case is closed and no one is there to help you. No one is there to aid you through this whole process. But but this is the thing, because remember, when, when you go to court, the third the first thing you do when you've put in your application is you're thinking, I'm gonna to go to court and they're gonna give me some form of justice to see my children. Yeah. Um and in the back of your mind you're always told the same thing um by the guardians, the solicitors, everyone everyone's saying with with well, the court's gonna work for the best interest of that child. Exactly. Okay. And, and you'll always hear that. And, and if you're listening to this podcast, that's a phrase, unfortunately, they throw around quite a lot, especially when they go against you. 
um, they they will continue to say that we're we're working in the best interest of that child. Okay, now when you go to court, they assign you. I'm, I'm going to move on to our lovely Kafkas. I don't know how many people <laughs> here have had experience with Kafkas. Oh yes, um, but <laughs> I have had some horrendous experience with them. Now, don't get me wrong; they're probably not all the same. Unfortunately, the ones that I had were all the same, unfortunately. Um, and and what really bugged me about it was the lack of research they'd done with me in terms of me spending time with my children. They never, ever actually did an interview with me and my children. All the interviews I had uh, with Kath Kaths was either via the phone or if they did meet me in person, it was always me on my own. There was no, they can never see the interaction between me and my child. But yet, when I spoke to them about my ex-partner, it was always, yeah, we've been to the house. You know, we've seen how that that your 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 daughter is interacting with the mother, and and it's great, and the stepfather is doing great with with your daughter, and and all that stuff. And there, and I'm thinking, well, hold on. You've taken the time to go and visit them, but you haven't taken the time to come and visit me with my child. Yeah. So how would you know what kind of bond I have with my child if you've never seen it? No, I completely agree. Yeah, you know, how, how can you make a judgment or how can you do a report on me if you've never seen me with my child? So the other the other issue that I have with Kafkas is the fact that what nothing's recorded. Okay, nothing is recorded. No phone calls, no um, in-person interviews. They're not recorded. Okay, and I have a big issue with that. And I'll tell you why. In my personal case, when I actually sat down with the Kafkas um, officer, they actually said to me, you know, your ex-partner this, your ex-partner. And I'm thinking, okay, so you can see what I see then. Great, fantastic. Okay, so that means that your report is going to show everything that I said from the start and my position statements and everything. It's all going to come out in a report. Fantastic. I was so happy. I was like, that's it. This is it. Game over. Let's let's just move on now. Let's just get access to my child and move on. That didn't happen, did it? <laughs> no. When they submitted that Section 7, okay, I I felt sick. I felt physically sick. Now, as I said, I'm, when we're not, this podcast is not to scare you, okay? If you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking, oh, it all sounds like horror stories. It's not. It's not. This is just our own personal experiences. Not every case will be dealt with the same. Um, and, you know, it, it is potluck, unfortunately, who you get to work with when it comes to Kafkas and, and the type of judge that you might also receive. Now, a Section 7 report is supposed to be a report about you your ex-partner, your children. It's supposed to encompass everything about your lifestyles and, and, and how beneficial it is to maintain that relationship with the children, okay? Now, even though I had a glowing interview with Kafkas, unfortunately, the report said differently. The report said everything completely opposite to what I was discussing with Kafkas in the office. And that made me really angry. I'm not going to lie. It made me furious because I couldn't believe it felt like they were just sitting there lying to me. And I'd rather you be upfront with me and tell me the truth than to lie in me, lie at me and then put it into a report. 
I was I was devastated. I'm not gonna lie, I was devastated. I'm so, correct at the same time, hundred percent, and that is not I mean, what I mean, a service should be about. I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak up for Cafes here a little bit. I mean, I I've actually apart from the last Guardian, I had a total of three Guardians with my daughter. Apart from the last Guardian, every interaction I had with Kafka's was a positive one. Oh and wow! They, 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 wow! They, yeah. <laughs> they, the Section Seven reports reflected the situation. You know, there were some things in there which I didn't agree with, but there were some things in there I agreed with. You know, you, you, you know, you do need to understand it's a third person interpreting the conversation. So I've always had a positive. I've had positive experiences with Kafka's. The Last Guardian, however, echoes exactly what you said. Absolutely, exactly what you said. And it got to the point. The Guardian herself, in a two and a half year case four times asked to be taken off the off the case and each time the judge said no I don't want you to I want you to stay on here in the end it got to the lawyer for the Guardian was writing the Kafka's reports and I said to the judge this is what's happening and they denied it I then put a subject access request into Kafka's only to find an email from the lawyer to the Guardian saying I've submitted this report I'm sure you'll agree with it and so the Guardian was just lazy absolutely lazy and it cost cost me easily two years of my life because of that and just end up being alienated from my daughter as a result of it. She was awful. The only thing that me and my ex-wife agreed on is that the Guardian was useless in court. That's a start. Because I could I said she was useless. I, I couldn't agree on anything. So, anything. And yeah. this is the thing. This is why I, I say to people it's so important that we have services out there that actually support people because going through this is traumatic. And Debbie will agree with this. It can be such a traumatic experience. The baggage that you carry around with you while you're going through this process is horrendous. And, and as I said, these services don't actually support you. They make it sound like they're supporting you. They, they literally, when they're talking to you, they're like, oh yeah, we're there for you. We'll make sure we do what's best for the child. And da -da 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 -da. But, but in, in hindsight, you're still sitting in court a year or two later going through the same motion. Well, the one thing I the one thing I didn't understand about the whole process is um, if you are a safe parent and you're and the fact that you need to make an application to court to see your child proves that there is something wrong. You know, mm. so I didn't I never there was no credibility given for that. But actually, the fact I'm coming to court means there is something wrong on the other side. Mm. That means yes. I'm stop I'm stopped from seeing my child. Yes. Mm. So, Absolutely. And, and what Mark was on, talking Debbie, sorry, about about the baggage that everybody carries most of that baggage actually isn't seen. The Correct. people that I talk to that are going through these cases on a regular basis, parents and grandparents, whatever happens in that conversation never seems to actually make it to court. And that seems to me quite a, a backward way of dealing with something. If you as the parent or the grandparent is going to court because you have a problem and you need help to get it resolved. Yeah. Why are they not actually hearing the things that you're saying? I think Matt was dead right. They once you once you've entered once you've made the court application, they see you as the problem. <laughs> yes, mm. yes, exactly that, and that's and I hear that constantly, you know. And and a lot of my dealings are with grandparents, and when they say, you know, oh, they were lovely to our face, but when we get to the court. They never even mention what we talked about. And then you wonder, what was all that effort for? What was all the time for and energy that you put into that, trying to have your voice heard, your fears heard, 
and being completely flattened by officialdom. Yeah. If I could just chip in, um, my experience with Kafkas was pretty much almost the opposite of what you experienced, Mark, what you des- described. I did go to court and get contact. I pretty much, that was sorted quite quite easily. Um, it was never adhered to, but that's another story. Um, but Kafkas was instructed to investigate, and they did. They spoke to me on numerous occasions. They spoke to me with my um, new partner on numerous occasions. They spoke to me with the children on numerous occasions, children on their own as well. Did they speak to my ex-partner? No, not once. In fact, they inquired to me why she wasn't answering the phone, why she was not getting in contact with them. The the report went to the court um, and they admitted there was something wrong. They couldn't put their finger on it, but there was something wrong. That was the end of it. My allegations of emotional abuse were, were thrown out. She was allowed to continue as she'd been going on, poisoning me um, towards the children. Mm. Sorry, my headphones have just dropped out. Oh, oh, wow. I have never, <laughs> genuinely, I, I, that is amazing. The fact that they actually took the time to do all that. It's very rare. Not, not, very with, rare. not, with, not with my ex, though. Not with no, no, the person that they needed to speak rare. to. It's very rare that they don't speak to someone. That's what I'm saying. Mm. Like your your ex would probably that's normally the first pe- person that they they speak to, mm. um, and the fact that they didn't is is well that's, that says it all really. <laughs> the, the, the other annoying thing that I will never forgive the guy. Um, he kept saying to me, um, "I have much more important cases to investigate than this." <laughs> Yes, and, but Thank they all you very much, that, Sunshine. They, they they do all say that pretty much, um, especially when it gets too difficult. When the case yeah. gets difficult, yeah, like, which oh. it clearly was. He didn't understand what yeah. was going, like, or didn't want to understand what was really yeah. going on. Because that like, would have oh. been somebody mentioned lazy. Yeah, that would involve a little bit more work, wouldn't it? Or mm. or they throw in the high conflict. Okay. Yeah, that's the one. If, yeah, if yeah. They really don't want to get into relationship. Up. High conflict. <laughs> mm. They're like yeah. high conflict. That's it. We we, we yeah. won't do any more work now. It's too high conflict, and it's mm. never going to be resolved. And then they mm. just yeah. say, right, we're off the case. We we can't do any more here. And and they just they vanish. Mm. They literally vanish. You try yeah. to email them, they don't reply. Yeah. You try to call mm. them, they don't answer the phone. I tell, I tell you another story. I tell another story about my case. Is that um. My ex-wife refused to talk to Kafkas and refused to take my daughter to Kafkas. Basically, point back refused. So I told, I asked Kafkas to make an application for a Part Twenty Five specialist to um, to investigate what's going on, which they did, and we, they were given an order for Part Twenty Five. My ex-wife in court said, "I'm not going to comply, and nor will I allow my daughter to comply with this. So it's not going to happen." And basically, came the date when they're supposed to go, they never turned up. I said to Kafkas, "You need to go back. You need to enforce this." They they pretty much shrug their shoulders and say, "What can we do?" It's like you've just you've just deemed it more appro- appropriate for a psychologist to examine a, examine my daughter because of the the, the nature of the the, the case. And all, a judge has given you that order, and now you're saying you're not going to enforce it. Not even pass them the paperwork to actually read the paperwork, and they just, "What can we do? What can we do?" <laughs> but that but that is a common answer. Unfortunately, yeah. that is a common answer as well. Um, when they don't know what to do. They wash their hands of it. Yeah. They yeah. either use the high conflict thing with the judges and they all sit there in cahoots going, it's high conflict. And they're like, oh, now we yeah. can get out of this. It's getting too complicated. We just use the high conflict word and we can just sort of push it aside. And and that's not acceptable. And then 
let's because we, we, we've talked a bit about Kafka's, but then they work in tandem with social services. I don't know if you you anyone here has had social services involved as well as Kafka's. I did um, at the beginning, yeah. but but I have, <laughs> and that experience in itself was traumatic. I right. don't like anything like this because, as I said, when you're in a relationship. The last thing you think when you separate from someone is that you're going to get your child embroiled in a court system yeah. of Kafka's social services and 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 solicitors. That's the last thing you you want your child to ever have to be in part of. Um, but then I found when social services got involved, it seemed to escalate things. Okay, not only were they in cahoots with Kafka's. But they were all agreeing stuff with Kafka's without even letting me know, mm. and they were talking to, they were all, they were both visiting my ex and 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 working on things in the background and and not even telling me about it, and I'm like this is outrageous. And then, and then the social worker said, right, I'm going to be paying your ex partner a visit. I said, oh great, okay. When are you going to visit me? Oh, we're not. When what? We don't need to visit you. I said, well, why not? You know, if you're going to visit my ex-partner, surely you want to visit me with my child. Well, as you don't have access to your child, we're just going to visit your ex-partner only with her her, her, her new partner. Um, and then they said, oh, well, by the way, your daughter's calling the stepdad daddy. And I'm like, okay, why are you telling me that? <laughs> you know, what was the purpose of you dropping that in there? So then I, I asked her, are you recording our conversations? Because... I found on the phone with social services as well, they were saying things which they shouldn't be saying. And it wasn't very professional what she was saying. And I asked her quite bluntly, are you recording these calls? No. I said, well, I am. Just so you know, I am recording it. Because one, I've never experienced a situation like this before. I've never wanted to be in a situation like this. And I'm sure a lot of parents that are listening to this won't want to be in a situation like this. So I did it to cover myself because it's the things that she was saying was illegal <laughs> it was just yeah. outrageous what she was saying to me on the phone but i'll be honest with you, Mark, I, I find from you know the experience i've had from dealing with you no know, just, just speaking with other fathers and so on and, and some mothers that the outcome of the court is very much dependent on the child's age so if the child is kind of five and below you can you know you can reasonably expect a a, a good a good involvement and outcome from the court process and Kafka will be heavily involved between the age of five and nine i mean they become less interested and after nine years of age i honestly if anyone asked me for advice now I'd, i wouldn't even, i would tell them not to bother because <laughs> basically the fact that you're gonna you're gonna you know you're not gonna see your kids for six to nine months you know alienation is going to set in by the time you go to court it's, it's going to be a painful experience for everybody including the child to be in there and I, I, I agree with you. S, uh, social services were just useless in my case. Absolutely useless. I mean, I just left away, you know, they're called SS for a reason. It was just awful. <laughs> it was really very unpleasant. They didn't do anything. They made actually made matters a lot worse. Um, and um, it, it was a very unpleasant process. I'm in the unusual position of having a finding a prince of alienation made against my ex, which is unusual. And... Um, I'm now looking, the only recourse I've got now is to look at some laws that were passed in April. Um, I'd need to look into some bit more, but 
about the control and the coercion and, and all the other things a lot that could be applied retrospectively, but I'm not going to walk That's actually got a point. Funny enough, funny enough you say that with the coercive control yeah. and things like that. Now, funny enough, a, a lot of the dads don't ever speak about that. Now, I yeah. don't know if Debbie's anyone's ever spoken to you about this, Debbie, but when, when it comes to a, a man being controlled in a situation, especially when it comes to the children, men don't think about coercive control because they, I guess we are programmed differently, aren't we? We, we, we don't see ourselves as victims. Um, and I think that's also a problem with men because even when we go through things like domestic abuse or violence, we don't see ourselves as victims. So we don't report it. We don't speak to anyone. And that's a problem. Yeah, and... You won't get anywhere if you do, though. We'll not get anywhere if you do that. Because I I wanted to report up for a sexual assault. And I went to the police. And all I got was this really aggressive sergeant shouting me down the phone at me, telling me, um, you know, it's basically in so many words, to get lost. There's no case. And I said, but she told me if I didn't do what she wanted me to, she threatened I'd never see my children again. And now alienated. This was like a couple of years ago. And I said, I've been, sat, I've been sitting on this for a long time. I remember that night. I couldn't sleep all night. She slept like a baby. And I was just worried because I thought I'm not going to see my children again. Because that's what she was like. She was just horrible. And then uh, they just dismissed me like it was, they could have just laughed at me. It was just nothing to them. And that's why people don't go to the police. Because the police... If you're a man, it doesn't matter. You know, you must be guilty. And as we see all the time now, all these proponents of this anti-PA um, feminist sort of organisation on Twitter, they're all on there, you know, saying all oh, men are perpetrators. And that, you know, I, I feel re-victimised reading that. It's just disgusting. The whole thing is completely rotten. And it needs, it needs looking at and it needs to be fixed. And I don't know how we're going to do this because as far as I can see, there's lots of money to be made out of this, and the misery factor will just be there forever for more and more people that are about to become fathers that are going to go through this, and then find that the women that are alienated from their children are thrown under the bus as well because they don't allow parental alienation become, to become illegal because, you know, even though it affects the alienated mothers, yeah. forget yeah, about and, them and because it helps fathers too. And a lot of that is to do with the That's money that organisations such as Refuge and Women's Aid actually get given by the government yeah it's very very political it's and and an awful lot of men in government are hounded and belittled by a great deal of the women who are fueling that behavior and you know i i've seen that time and time again and i hear it time and time again talking to fathers such as yourself who are terrified of speaking up a, because they've spent their whole lives being told to be strong for their mothers and to be strong for the other people in their lives. They've been told not to have emotion. You're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to show your emotion. You've been, you know, you, you and you, you hear it constantly. And because that is so ingrained in your psyche, you just don't speak up when you need to because there is that fear sitting in your subconscious that if you speak up, you're going to be wrong. So it belittles you and it makes you quiet. And that 100%. also relates back to losses way back in your childhood. 
to do with the relationship you had with your parents and any other influential adult in your life. Could even have been the school teacher at your primary school. It's actually, it's interesting you say that because I believe a lot of this is transgenerational. Hugely. If I look back, Hugely. if I look at my, my ex-wife, for instance, her mother did exactly the same. There was, she had two husbands, I think, and three children, two husbands, and exactly the same thing was done to both the fathers in their lives. Yes. And all of a sudden, you know, you see it happening again and again. But so, so what that means is that we are breeding a generation of people who are going to do this again and again and again. And it's the trauma that we're inflicting on children as a result of the process of the family core. It's just tremendous. Absolutely and tremendous. Going to, and it's going to carry on because they are being shown an example of how to be with the person in their life that is supposed to be the person who they love, who they care about, who they've created children with. But they're not going to know what that is because that's not the example they're being given. They're being given an example that that person makes the children and that person's then excluded at whatever cost from that child's yeah. life. Well and said. The possibility Absolutely. is that the children will turn on their own parent given their turn. That's a yeah. fear I have for my own grandchildren doing to my daughter what she's done to me. And I've been, I've been summarily punished for moving and leaving an alcoholic man who was destroying me to the point that I could not function as a parent, that I had spent all of her 14 years trying so hard to keep her safe from all of his behaviours. And she has no idea, not at all, of the things I went through and I heard, I experienced, and the way I was treated, not just by him, but by other adults who thought they could involve themselves in our marriage. Yeah. And when it came to the breakdown of our marriage, I had no idea that there was a war party lynch, lynch mob lifted up and ready against me. Because it wasn't just my divorce with my ex-husband. It was my divorce with my ex-sister-in-law and somebody who had supposed to have been my friend and various other hangers-on that, you know, and he created this posse of women around him that all raised their voice against me. And yet not once in all the, the many, many years of relationship that I had with any one of those women, have they ever said those things to my face, ever given me any indication that I was going to experience that from them through my divorce. And they all had an influence in the language that was being used around my child who I couldn't protect because I was separated from her. The thing is, Debbie, right, they, what I think they're lacking in, in investigating properly is the prevalence of personality disorders. That there's so many of these people with personality disorders and they are highly persuasive and they can play the victim like you, like, like Oscar-style exactly. performance. Everybody falls that, for And it. that's exactly and what you, my ex-husband did. He played the victim. Like he did it when we went to mediation. He berated me in the car for an hour with a, a, a can of drink in his hand and, and yelled and screamed at me in the car for an hour until we got to the mediation appointment. So at that mediation appointment, I was extremely distressed and upset. And I was, I was just beside myself. So when I tried to explain that to the person who was supposed to be impartial, <laughs> I was told I had an anger problem because he sat there with his arms crossed and his legs outstretched and said, 
I haven't got a problem with Debbie. Well, it's no wonder because he was bullying me all the way there and all the way back every single week. You know, and, and this is what happens when you are in that place where you cannot speak up because you are not being heard. And eventually you just stop speaking up because you know that every time you do, it's going to be used as a blunt instrument against you. 100%. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And don't forget as well, it's, uh, it's our children that don't want to see <gasps> us. So consequently, we must be the bad, bad yes. parents. Absolutely. Yes. And, and even in society, you know, they look at it that way. It's less of an issue for, for fathers, I would imagine, but for mothers who are alienated, you know, society is not ready for that breakdown in that relationship to understand actually it's because of a reason. There yep. is something going on there. And it's, it's, it's very difficult, I think particularly difficult for women. It's very difficult for men. And I, I'm, I'm alienated my daughter now. There's not a moment in my day when my daughter is not in my head. Yes. You know, I'm wondering what she's doing now, how is she getting on at school, what, you know, this, that and the other. And it's constantly going on. So it's, it's, it's you know, there's so much that needs to be resolved, not just in the legal system, but in a societal system as well. So I do yeah. fear. I've actually said to the judge in the, um, I mean, the, the, the district judge gave us, gave me, ended up giving me a, um, an indirect contact order. And I said that that's, that's effectively a no contact order. And what you're doing is you're putting me back in this court in 21 years, trying to get contact with my, my grandchildren, because that's what's going to happen as we go through here. And if well, I can, I just, want, I just want to share, because I did appeal the decision. I want to share something that the judge wrote in the, in the, um, in the, in the, in the judgment. He said, I share the judge's concern for my daughter's name, emotional development, the loss of a relationship with a father, a father who by all the evidence shows loves and she loves and whose company she enjoyed is a loss that will cost her dear in the short, medium and long term. That is unreconcilable with the child welfare checklist. And yet that's the situation we're in. So you, you, you throw your life to a judge expecting them to make the right decision, as you say, for the welfare of the child. And they, they effectively say, no, had enough, on you go, not interested anymore. But logically, if they say that, the, the most logical step you will take then is to remove the child from Absolutely. the abuse and send them to the person where they're safe. The, the thing is, when it comes that, to removing children, that's a bit of a taboo subject, unfortunately, um, because there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of outside influence, unfortunately, on the court system, especially when it comes to um, mothers that are in the court system. And if a child is even thought about being removed um, from that mother, it, it, it has a massive ripple effect. Uh, within the court system um, and that's why they tend to don't do it um, at all uh, and when they do do it, it you know they have to make it out to be like it's an extreme case um, where it should be what's best for the child what's best for the child's um, development mental health you know everything that comes with it, it should be seen as that as opposed to an extreme case of this is the only time we can remove that child. Now, re removing a child is not an easy thing anyway, because it's, it's quite a serious thing to do. But if there's evidence that that child, something's going on for that child to be removed, then yeah, but, that needs but, but to be Mark, looked at. But Mark, remove the child from what? What should be happening is that a child moves freely between the mother and the father if they're post-separation, and so there's no need for it to be removed. What you're removing the child from is an emotionally abusive environment to one which arguably is, is going to be safe or safer 
So I understand what but you're saying. I do understand there's, there's a whole catalogue against that. it. That's the issue. Yeah, but that, I, I agree. You know, yeah. anyone yeah. with a bit of common sense would do that. But yeah. they, they very rarely do it. They very, very no, no, rarely I agree. do it. And I've seen horrendous yeah. cases yeah. where they said in their reports and judgments that this child is going to be severely damaged in the future because of the harm that is happening from the resident parent. But yet, yeah. they still left the child there. Do nothing about it. I mean, part of their concern is they're, they're worried the child's going to run away and run, run back to um, you know, the, the, where they've been taken from. Now that, but that clearly shows you that there's something wrong there. You know, yeah. If a child's going to run, run away from a safe, loving environment, a safe, loving parent, back to an abusive environment, you've got to, you know, they've got to step in and, and, and resolve this. It, it's, 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 there's it's, a couple of things that I want to obviously address. With. One, one's generational trauma. Generational trauma is, is a massive issue when it comes to going to court and, and all the things that we've experienced. A lot of this stuff is generational, unfortunately. Um, and again, someone mentioned earlier about personality disorders. Now, no, no one in, unfortunately, no one in the court system seems to care that someone, doesn't matter if it's the mum or dad, someone may be suffering from some form of mental health issue, okay? Mm -hmm. And they might need a diagnosis for that in order to make the process of the court smoother. Okay, so that means someone of a medical professional may need to come in and interview the parents and get to the bottom of what the, the real issue is here, as opposed to just saying everything's high conflict. Okay, generational trauma is a, is a massive, massive issue in, in what we, we deal with. Can I just can I just think? Sorry, um, I I had a psychologist who saw my ex-wife and myself. She found nothing, no issues with me whatsoever. With her, interestingly, they found hyper anxiety, a helplessness strategy, and and it was the third one. Coming, the third one was, but um, oh, control issues. Right, those three factors they found. And to my mind, if you've discovered those three yeah. things, that is indicative of an underlying personality disorder. So what are they professionally kind of triggered to think, well, let's look into this further and find out what's driving this behaviour? They don't. They just stop. No, and I, that's it. I completely agree. In my, in my first set of proceedings, there was a, psych really a psychological report it. on my ex-wife that found that she transfers her anxieties into the child. And then and my, my answer to that was, and? And what are you going to do about it? <laughs> exactly. And this is the problem. No one does anything. It just Everything just goes stagnant oh, okay. everything yeah. just they, they just rush in to get the final hearing out the way and they can wipe their hands <coughs> of, off the court no you're right no. move on to the next case it's funny because when it came up in court you could actually hear everyone go hmm and that was it exactly exactly <laughs> that, because they know in the end what's going to happen is they're going to finish the final hearing you're going to still have no contact and what are you going to do go back to court come back again <laughs> You're going to go back again and start the whole process over again. And that's how they catch you. It's like a it's like a it's like a cog wheel. You need the cogs to keep the wheel moving. OK, and the only way to keep that cog moving is if they try and finish that final hearing as quick as possible with nothing really resolved. Yeah, yeah. They tell you that they've resolved it and they've put court orders in place. But the, but the, the resident parent won't abide by it. So yeah. they know you're going to have to come back again and start the process again. So talking have about you, process, actually, you, sorry. Um, sorry, legal aid, they stopped legal yeah, aid, okay, they stopped legal aid, and 
There's a loophole. Who knows what a loophole is to legal aid now? Domestic abuse. Now, are we going to address this? <laughs> well, I've done it. I got legal aid using that very thing because um, I'd been seeing my GP several times because I was trying to work in a hospital and this was affecting my work. And, um, he signed me off. He said he didn't want me um, being there giving intravenous medications and controlled drugs whilst I'm, you know, not got my eye on the ball. And I did suffer a lot from the hurt behaviour. So I went to see my GP and, and he wrote a letter for me to give to legal aid. And I actually got legal aid, which is unusual for a man to get. I did get legal aid, but on another on the, on the other side of that coin, I would say that legal aid itself is pretty useless because they're, they're given a sort of minimum wage, if you like, these solicitors, and they're not really, they haven't got their heart in it. They just do well, go I'm, through emotions. That's what I'm like surprised that you got legal aid in the first place. You know, so, did you think, get that based on medical records or something? Okay, so that that is, I've never heard that before because normally, normally with, with, with legal aid, you have to um state that there's some form of domestic violence or abuse that is um occurred within that relationship in order for them to grant you and you also have to go to a specific charity which i'm not going to mention um who will do the application and everything for you uh to get you that legal aid okay so i i that that's something new i've never heard that before so um not like legal aid would have helped me anyway, because again, like anything in life, they get a small budget to do the legal aid work and they literally do no work. So what can I say? Well, you know, the problem with legal aid, and, and this goes back to when I worked in the solicitor's office, every single memo, telephone call, note is charged. And that's why they can't do the work because they can't actually get paid for it so they don't do it and so all the essential bits all the small snippets of really important information never get recorded because they're not going to get paid for it so why do it in the first place and i mean literally everything every time they do a voice recording every time they do a telephone message every time they have um an email every single item is charged and that's why they don't. Yeah. I saw, a, I saw a program once called Minder and George Cole said, he said, I saw my brief in Ice Cream yep. the other day. I said hello and he sent me a bill for a fiver. That's that a joke. Is exactly. But that is how it is. That is literally how it is. And everything, unless, unless you've got the money, you're going to get nowhere. So I, I sacked that person off and I just self-litigated after that. Well, I want to touch upon, guys and, and, and ladies, I want to touch upon um, solutions, okay, solutions for all of this, because I, I don't want people thinking that we've come on here and all we're doing is complaining about these services. These are our own personal experiences. We, 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 we're not saying that everyone's going to experience what we've experienced. Unfortunately, this is a pattern, and a lot of people that I know and worked with have gone through the same sort of process, unfortunately. But... What I want to talk about is solutions, okay? Now, the government, I don't know if, how many people know about this, but the government has proposed a new families hub. Now, what they want to do with these family hubs is to locate them around the UK. And these family hubs are supposed to be a one-stop shop. 
okay, to help families. The issue I have <laughs> with the family hubs is they're giving the money to local authorities. <laughs> so what do you? What does everyone think about that? These the, the money is not independent. It's not going to independent organisations to run these family hubs. It's actually going to local authorities. The local authorities have to apply for the funding to open up these family hubs. I think if you look at where local authorities spend their money for domestic violence, you'll see where that yeah, money goes. Well, that will go back. Well, do, we, do we think this is a good idea? Not at all. Yeah, that go back. Well, I think, I think the family hub is a good idea. No. The way it's being funded is not a good idea. I, mean, I, I do think um, we need a, a citizen's advice bureau type organisation to, um, to, to help families um, who are who are approaching a separation. You know, because a man or a woman will ask their friends, oh, I want to leave my wife, I want to leave my husband. And they'll say, oh, get a good lawyer, get the house, get the kids. And that's the worst possible advice you can give to anybody. So it's, um, so, you know, an independent citizens advice bureau-like organisation, I think is a good idea. The way they're trying to fund it is, a, is, 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 a, is it's not going to work. It's a disaster. Well, but this is what I'm saying. This is why I'm worried about this, because they've, they've put aside quite a large budget for this okay and let's be honest local authorities are struggling okay they're, they're struggling so they've got a big fat pot of cash there to open these family hubs i can't see it working personally their, their social services are stretched as it is so you're going to now try and get the local authority to put money and time into these family hubs which to be honest they don't really care about let's be honest these local authorities don't care about it because it's what what I think would have been better, and this is just my own personal view, is there's independent charities and uh, non-profits out there that know about these um, cases that we're talking about that can use that money more efficiently to support the families long term to actually get the results that's needed. Now, let's be honest. If you if you've got a local authority now taking a, a large budget to open up a family hub, they they're going to be running on statistics, like most government organisations. It's all about statistics, so it's going to be one of those in and out type scenarios. Let's get the families in as quick as possible, and let's get them out as quick as possible because we don't we can't we can't waste the money actually really helping them. We just need to make it look like we're helping them. And I don't think that's going to work. We, we've got too many people out there doing that already. So surely we need a different solution. I'd absolutely agree. The problem you've always got, though, the problem you've always got, though, is the false allegations side of things, which does slow things up horrendously. And I think they should deal with false allegations as soon as possible as a priority, because that is what causes the alienation in the long term, because it gives them the space to control your child psychologically and put all these things into their head which aren't true and then it's it's just destroyed your relationship gets destroyed so if they started with the false allegations deal with them at criminal court level as well not just a you know you know probability sort of um aspect then i think things could move a lot quicker and you can find out of who that really is the problem in that relationship and why the children are best served can i interject on that can I interject on that? Because I, I really do agree with you for an awful lot of those things. But in my own experience, um, 
I was literally drummed out of my daughter's life within 24 hours of saying I wanted a divorce. And it wasn't until just a few short years ago that I really understood the levels of grief involved, not just at what happened and how it happened, but also how the levels of grief from my childhood and my ex-husband's childhood had had an impact on the behaviours of the time and the way we responsed and, and didn't reason with each other. And this actually is one of the biggest things. If, if we went through a process as adults of dealing with the problems that we've actually been living with, and being really vocally honest about the things that we've been we've been coping with that have been difficult and where the relationship has broken down where we've stopped relating to each other and talking to each other if we actually looked at those things in depth and put our honest voices to those things and the other side knew something of those honest voices there'd be an awful lot of realizations and ahas that actually there's been a massive amount of mixed messaging going on where nobody's hearing the opposite side. Mm. Yeah, ev everything everything needs to be investigated. This family hub sounds, sounds a good idea. Um, I think I agree with you, Mark, it, it, it won't work, but we do need um, early intervention um, and properly investigating what's going on. Is there alienation? Is, the, is there abuse? We spoke, spoke about courts and Kafkas earlier. That's too late. When you get to that stage, it's yeah. too late. Damage has been done. The children have been emotionally and psychologically damaged already. Mm. It's, it's too late. It needs mm. early, early intervention. But, you know, you know there, is a, there is a model that actually is in the UK courts at the moment. I think it's, um, it's called the um, Family Drug and Alcohol Courts. Whereas if, if a parent, um, normally as a single parent, is addicted to drugs or alcohol and they're at the point where their children might be taken away, that they can, they, they can opt to go to this family drug and alcohol courts. It's um, FDAC, it's fdadc.org.uk. It's not related to Ministry of Justice. It's um, run by the people at um, um, Centre for Justice Innovation. But basically, if, the child, if their child is about to go into, into care, they can opt to go to this family, alternative family court where the whole system revolves around repairing that relationship, getting that parent off of, of, of their addiction and making sure they maintain that relationship with the child the whole time. So yeah. it's something like that that needs to be put into place. Yeah. So, yeah. And, it's, and it's done there to support the relationship. It's not there to break the relationship down, to sever the relationship. It's there to support it. I think, going back, I think as Matt mentioned about the false allegations, there was actually no reason six months into a trial hearing or a court process, all of a sudden a false allegation can be raised up, never be reported to the police. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, I'm worried he might sexually abuse the son or the daughter or something, like that, or she might sexually abuse. I mean, that just is evidence that the person is doing it maliciously. And they do, I agree with you, I, and everyone I speak to, it's the false allegations in the process which is causing the delay and causing the most amount of expense. So when, when people talk about you know, what, they should, what they should be doing in the court, deal with false allegations straight away. That's the most important thing. And also, I, 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 I agree as well. I think for absolutely the, the problem that we have is there's no early intervention. There's, there's no one yeah. has come to the conclusion that early intervention is the best way. Okay.
Now, for me, that's something I want my organisation to do, is to interject straight away early intervention, because that is the key to success when it comes to families, okay? Without it, it gets dragged on for years and years and years, and damage just continues, okay? False allegations, again, false allegations and domestic abuse or violence, anything of that nature, okay, should be transferred to criminal court, okay? And what I mean by that is it allows then the police to do a proper investigation instead of allowing people to turn up to to uh, family court and, and and if it's going if it isn't going their way, they just throw in these allegations just just willy nilly, you know. Oh, look, the dad might be getting more access or the mum might be getting more access. Let me just throw in a little a little nugget, you know. That, oh, by the way, did you know that they abused? Well, hold on, where did that come from? Yeah. That's, that's just, unacceptable. The judge should then go, hold on, that's quite a serious allegation you're making there. What we're going to have to do now is get the police involved and let them investigate. And if need be, they can transfer that part to criminal court because that's where it should be tested. Yes, it should absolutely. be tested to a criminal standard. Absolutely. And do you notice the pattern with legal aid that when people are nearly on their first year, nearly on their second year, nearly on their third year, right up to five years, that's when the false allegations come up yeah. because as soon as that false allegation is made they automatically click into the next year of legal aid yeah. makes it very easy to keep the process in court keep the process unresolved and keep creating nonsense 100 yeah i know whether it goes to criminal court or not i mean funnily enough actually i, I mentioned this to somebody the other day and they said to me, if you think family courts are in a bad way, you should look at the criminal courts. So I think you know the, the delay, if you kick it to criminal court, the delay might even be more. What I, what I would like to see is sanctions being made against those who make false allegations. Yes. Because I believe if you start sanctioning those who make false allegations, very soon they'll, they'll, they won't be encouraged. They won't be, and I believe my ex-wife particularly was encouraged to make false allegations. She certainly wasn't sat down and say, are you sure? Are you sure this is happening by her lawyers? I think she was encouraged to make false allegations and she knew, they knew, and she knew that if she made it, delay, 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 delay. So I think sanctions against those who make false allegations is far more important than I think they're kicking it up to criminal courts. Although I do believe it needs to be beyond reasonable doubt, not balance of probability. Well, this is this is the thing, because this is this is what people don't understand. If it gets moved to criminal court and false allegations have been made, then they can be prosecuted for it. The problem that we have is when, because it's not tested to criminal standard. So when it comes to family court, it's just accepted as fact. That's not good enough. If it goes to criminal court, it will quash all false allegations. It will stop it immediately because the person, once they, once it's fully investigated and the court says, well, hold on, that's false. You've made a full, right, that's it. Now we can prosecute you for that false allegation. In family right. court, you don't get that. You will never get that in family court, unfortunately. I thought they I, just take, I, I, it, they take it as fact. That's it. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not legally trained, but I thought it was still perjury in the family courts if they made a false allegation, and it's just well, that no, nobody ever gets prosecuted for perjury. They don't action it. They don't action it, but they yeah, can they action it. it in criminal. They can That's what they yeah, can yeah. action it yeah. as perjury in criminal court, and then they can get yeah. a conviction out of it. Yeah, I know. It's just it's a sanction that's required. I'm, I'm sure of it. So it's a. But like I say, but going back to your idea of early intervention, the problem I have with that is that, you know, it's, it's, I agree with you, early intervention is required, but there's a, if you ask 100 people, you get 1,000 different deter, um, deter, <laughs> definitions of early intervention. I, th I think it's just got to be seen as a national health crisis. 
that we are literally poisoning our next generation of our children and the children beyond that. And that, you know, we've got to get this out from the adversarial system that we have at the moment. And, and not just that, these children lose half of who they are, not just with losing their parent, they lose their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins. They, they are their first friends in life. They are their alternative adults who they can go to when they have a problem and they're not there. They are wiped out of their lives as if they were completely insignificant, but the children have no voice in that loss. You know, there are 1.4 million grandparents detached from about 2 million children. That's a massive figure. And when I worked it out, when I set up Berkshire Grandparents, I sat down and I worked out just how many people become detached from a child when they lose a connection with a parent. And I worked it out to approximately 13 valuable family connections. Now, consider a family where that's two children, three children, you know, and that's a massive amount of people to lose from your life, not have a voice, not understand why, and none of these children do. So it isn't just the alienation from the parent, it's the alienation from their wider family who give them so much balance in their lives. And, and also, um, can I just say with reference to those recent killings of Arthur and Star, that all these the grandparents in both yes. of those cases, I believe these both cases were alienated. Yes. Any any wider yes, members of the family were pushed away. So the abuse could go on un, unchecked. And also, I think, you know, they, they, they make allegations about us in family court. We're the parents, okay? We have to go through that mill with that. And you have to try, you have to prove you're innocent. It's ridiculous. And then you get these people that uh, can go and find a boyfriend or a girlfriend, move them in. No one knows anything about them. They start controlling everything. They cut everybody yeah, else off. And then the child gets, gets murdered. Why aren't they... Why aren't they doing DBS checks on people that move into your child's house behind closed doors? No one knows anything about this person. Well, this is this, anything this is the happen. thing. This is they've got to do something. There is no real due process, is there, for for situations like this? And this is why you know it's good to talk about these things. It's good to have a discussion about it, so we can we can hopefully pick up people's ideas and and feedback as to what experiences they've had and and what they think that might work. Now we've got Dominic Rab says that he wants to um, invite a drastic and bold idea to keep family matters out of court. Now, I know when, when, when MPs say things like this, it's all, it's all for, or a, for effect. There's no real meat to it. You know, there's no real substance to what they're saying because they don't really care. Let's be honest, they don't actually care. What they're trying to do is just say, well, you know, I've had an email or I've had a a letter sent to me with regards to a parent struggling in court. So, you know, I have to make it look like I'm doing something. If if Dominic Rabb came and sat on this this podcast, what would you say to him? What what could keep family matters out of court in your eyes? Well, people doing their jobs, right? <laughs> if if, if Kafkas did their job and the court the and the judges did their job, I think it would be over a lot quicker. So, I mean, 
And there's there's a huge lack of education for judges. You know, yeah. Sir Paul Coleridge left the judiciary because he didn't like what was happening in family court. And every time he raised his voice to say it should not be like this, he was beaten down. And so all the other judges that want to make change just don't raise their voices. And he actually stood on a podium at a, a parental alienation conference in 2018 that I attended. And he said, the judges are not educated enough. They need to have better education in family breakdown. Most of them haven't got a clue. They're scrabbling in the dark. And people like Dominic Raab actually ought to be supporting those systems to be working properly. My, my, my fear, like sorry, sorry, Debbie. My, my fear with that is regardless of, of, of how much education we give the, the judges, I don't feel that that court is the right place in general. Anyway. Oh no, completely no, agree with you. Um, I, I I don't see even it doesn't matter how much because remember judges are, are busy people. They've got a lot to to take in and they've got some serious um, judgments to make uh, based on you know people's children and and family and and everything like that. So we we can educate them as much as we we want, but unfortunately, there's only so much they can physically do because. At the end of the day, they've got to write a court order. Okay, yep. that's what they're there for—is just to put orders in place and try and keep some some kind of structure to the process. But I I don't think they should be. We should be even be going to court. You know, we should be looking to keep this out of court full stop, so they don't even need to be educated, because it's it's the court process that makes this worse. I completely agree. It it, it, ex it exasperates the whole situation, and then. You know, unfortunately, you do get the unfortunate situations that people take their own lives um, because of the process. And what, yeah. what these people really need is support. Someone literally holding their hand through the whole process on both sides, because it's, it's about getting the communication from both parents. Yeah. They don't have to talk to each other, but someone needs to be in the middle. Someone needs to be able to do the communication between the parents and hopefully get some kind of resolve from them. As soon as you go to court, like someone said earlier, it's like you're going into a boxing match. Yes. You know, you, everyone's, everyone's tense, everyone's anxious, everyone's, you know, angry, emotions are flying. And then as soon as you get in there, it's like ding, ding, round one. And it starts. It is straight away, and, and and the only way we're going to solve this is if we remove that. Completely, completely agree. Well, I, I do agree with you, but we have to go back to you know why why are we in the situation in the first place? And it goes back to what we spoke about right at the very beginning. Everybody's experienced a huge amount of grief in this whole process. Correct. So yeah. if if I if I if I wanted to stop my partner from seeing their kids, I know if I go to court. Kafka's themselves say now it takes about 53 weeks to resolve um, on average a case. So I know there's a period of time where that person, my, my partner, will not see my children or not see our children. So, and I want to punish that person because the divorce settlement has not been as good as I expected. I've had to sell the house now, moved out of my four bedroom house into a two bedroom flat and I want to punish that person. And we've got to make it understand whether you're a, a father or a mother, punishing that person is not punishing that person at all, you're actually punishing the children. Exactly. And that's a society. That's a societal issue. That's not yes. so much a legal issue or anything like that. And until we 
un start to understand that children are not are not hammers to beat the other parent with, it's going to be very difficult to change all those things. I, I'm at a loss to understand how we're going to do that. When we find ourselves in that process, the system should be designed to support contact, support arrangements, support the family, not not to be a referee in a boxing match, if we can continue that analogy. So at the moment, Kafka's, I, I find you have Kafka's pretending to be judges and judges pretending to be Kafka's. You know, absolutely, yeah. Open courts and transparency, that's what we need. If people were held more accountable for their actions, maybe that will change people's views on what they're doing. Oh, because absolutely. at the moment, everyone can hide behind the, 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 the family court system and no one's yes. held accountable. I'm, I'm, I'm certain that my ex-wife and I have a very different story about what happened in court. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think it's not only you, Paul. It's probably all all exes will say, I'm, well, I'm the I'm victim. Sure you know, it was all yeah. them. Because yeah. as soon as you take someone to court, it's almost like that's it. They're the problem. The court sees you the problem because you want to go to court to see your children. Instead of going, well, why is he coming here? In, or why is he or she coming to court in the first place? You know, if if they were together for so long, oh, by the way, was there was there any abuse when when you were living together? No. Was there any domestic violence when you were together? No. Okay. So now we're in court. You're saying all these things that are happening now. Yes. Surely the judge would be like, "Come on, seriously, are we are we are we really doing this now?" He should be going right. What I'm going to do is we'll do a fact finding. Okay, but what we're going to do. You still see the children. We're not going to stop you from seeing the children because there's actually no risks. There's no risks here. So actually, we're just going to continue the, the relationship between both parents and we'll do a fact finding and then we can make a resolve from that. Okay? But they don't do that. They stop contact. They, they drag on the process for years to come. We need a solution. We need a solution. And, and as soon as you go to court, it gets dragged on and on and on. We need to nip it in the bud from the start. We need to remove that adversarial contact, that, that aggression, that emotion. We need to take it away and say, right, let's do it this way. Let's look, need, let's, let's change it up. We need something different because what's happening now ain't working. It ain't. It's not working. I, I don't think... I... The problem is, I think, with social services, they take they take sides straight away and they stick to that side. And also, in their mind, I think that saying nine possession is nine tenths of the law applies to them as well. So, if the kids are staying with one of the parents, they've been there all the time. They just loathe to see it any other way. So, I, I honestly believe that that we are in this system because the the system is so beneficial to one parent that they can they can use the children to punish the other one. If the system of the courts at the moment was 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 seen to be unbiased and, uh, and actually f and truly for the benefit of the children i don't think that many cases would be ends up in court anyway they'd be resolved through family they'd be resolved through the local pastor or priest or whatever and then we'd, they'd find alternative solutions to mediate the process it's because the system is so beneficial to the, to the aggressive parent that actually so many cases are now going up there because like i said the advice is get a good lawyer get a good lawyer get the house Get the kids. That is very true, the, Paul. The because the, the most recent case, I just want to talk about this briefly. The most recent case was the lady that moved from Dubai to the UK. Yeah, and absolutely. She, she, you know, if she stayed in Dubai, let's be realistic, she probably wouldn't have got anything. Okay. 
the fact that she had to move from Dubai back to the UK and then file for divorce, that's why she got such a huge settlement, over 500 million. Now, let's be realistic, yeah? It, that wouldn't have happened in Dubai. That, that just wouldn't have happened. So why, this is the thing, why do people feel that coming to the UK, getting married here and divorcing here is the way forward? What is, what is the UK portraying for people to think this is the place to be divorced? I mean, they say it. They say London's the divorce capital of the world. <laughs> but it's the truth, isn't it? What is what is being put out there for people to think that this this is, and you're right, it is societal, and we need to stop that. We need to stop that whole issue of oh, if you if you're in if you're in the UK and you get divorced, you'll get loads of money, loads of money, what? and that's where it all starts. <laughs> Loads it of is money. though, isn't it? It's or, just or you're crazy. completely, completely white. It doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. It doesn't matter no. because it's, it's, it doesn't, you know, if you're the one who unfortunately is the one that, that is, is instigating the divorce or the separation, you seem to be the one that loses out. I lost out completely. Yeah. I had absolutely nothing. And the little bit <laughs> of money that I got was paid for with the little bit of money that I got out of my divorce. So I didn't see a penny. And that's the problem. Always one side loses out completely, whether it be the children, whether it be financially, emotionally, there's always one side that gets drained. Completely. Always. Well, I... well the, big thing, the biggest thing they should look overall is the children's mental health and children's mental health presently yeah. all over the place is worse than it's ever been. And we, you know, we've got all the information. We understand why this happens. We understand what the processes are, and so on. But you know, still nothing changes. You think, well, they've got all this information. Surely they want to make sure children have every chance afforded to them growing up. But they just take it away from them, and they're quite happy with that. And I don't understand. I really don't understand why that should be their priority. And this is but why children have not just um, emotional mental health issues they also have eating disorders and behavior disorders and you know um all of the normal mores of society just go out the window because they they do not grow up knowing how to behave around other people or they end up so silent because they're terrified of being who they ought to be around other people because they do not know how to interact it's because they it's, it's because they know the secret have any of you, have any of you, sorry, have any of you ever met a person that is yes. from an alienated background? Yes, I've met a couple I have. By accident. And they both told the same things. And this girl that I spoke to, she said she moved to her dad when she was 11 and she was frightened because the court, because her mother was just, she had loads and loads of problems. And they moved her to her father, and she said, after that, she said, I've realised what it's like to live in a normal family, you know, and that's what they should be looking at for kids, but they don't want to do that. I don't know why, it's just... I mean, part, part of the challenge is on the legislation, we, you know, we don't have a presumption of shared care whatsoever. So, I mean, if, if you look at the current system as it was, if we had a presumption of, let's say, 50-50 contact, where it was safe and appropriate, I mean... If I worked on a North Sea oil rig, I wouldn't expect to see my kids 50% of the time. But and if I was a safe father and so on. So if you were entering this process with the assumption that you're that you're you no, know, there's a 50 50 
outcome and it's got to be exceptional as to why that doesn't happen I think a lot of these cases would just go away because you know it's the, the amount of contact is then linked to the amount of um, child maintenance you have to pay and all this type of stuff and it's just the whole system is designed around it's like a bunch of adults have sat in a room designed something which is based around the tax system rather than as yes. you said the welfare of the child going through yes absolutely 100%. that's all we have time for for this episode i would like to thank all my special guests steve debbie matt and paul for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join me on this uh, particular episode on the next episode of truth hurts we will be speaking to victims of the family court process and its associated services thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode i'm trisha Tharby. i'm from the uk and i listen to truth hurts podcast Hi, I'm Steve from England and I'm listening to the Truth Hurts podcast. I'm Christina from the UK and I'm listening to the Truth Hurts podcast. Hi, my name is Mark Hegarty and I'm from Wales in the UK and I am listening to the Truth Hurts podcast. I'm Jay Dean from the Netherlands and I'm listening to Truth Hurts Podcast. Hey, what's good, people? It's Missy here. Guess what? I'm listening to Truth Hurts Podcast.